This morning, I invite you to open your Bible, if you will, to your copy of God's Word. And if you'll find 1 Corinthians, and we're in chapter number 15. 1 Corinthians chapter number 15 is the text that we've look, we have chosen for the day and feel the Lord impressing us to look at. And today, as we look in this passage of Scripture, I want to think about the importance of the gospel, the central message that we preach, and uh, that it's important for us to keep our focus, a laser focus, on the very thing that God has called for us to be all about and to preach and to teach. And uh, it's so easy to get off track in this journey of life, isn't it? It's easy to lose our focus and easy to lose, if we're not careful, our priority. Now remember that Paul is writing to the church at Corinth. And this, the church at Corinth, they are a wonderfully gifted church. And Paul has a loving relationship with them. And he speaks to them as if they're his own children. And he's invested in them, and not only as a missionary, but as a pastor and apostle. But he's also confronting them about some of the issues that are going on in the life of the church. Were there some problems that he had to deal with? Yes, there were. We've talked about those in recent weeks. There were divisions within the congregation. Everybody had ever been in a church that got divided over one thing or another. There was competition between one group and another group. There were some cliques in the church. Anybody ever been a part of a church that had a few cliques in the church? And you know what? It's those kinds of problems that were undermining the church, and Paul dealt with it. There was also some problems with some immorality that wasn't dealt with, and that the church wasn't taking seriously the discipline of that issue, and so Paul had to deal with that because it has a way of undermining our message. And then there were people suing one another in courts of law, and he said, this ought to not be that way. And he corrects that. He's saying, you got your eyes off the focus. And, and then there were problems with marriages. Anybody ever had a problem in their marriage? Well, Paul, you don't have to raise your hand. But anyway, uh, we, we all know what that's kind of like, right? And so Paul was trying to help them to deal with that issue. And then there was issues related to church order and church giftedness. And, and right in the heart of that, he says, love ought to be essentially uh, evident in the life of a church and in an individual's life. And if I can have all these gifts and speaks of tongues of an or angels, he says, but I don't, if I don't have love, then I'm just a clanging symbol. And I'm empty inside it. And so Paul is moving them toward a unity and a love that ought to be essential in our life. Now he comes to chapter 15, and beginning with verse number one, he says, I want you to know what's very essentially important. Now I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preach to you, which you received, on which you've taken your stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold the message I preach to you, unless... You believed in vain, for I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. 
And then he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. And then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as the one born at the wrong time, he appeared to me. For I'm the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, so we proclaim, and so you have believed. Amen. Father in heaven, I pray that as we look at this text of Scripture today, that, Father, we might understand the essential center of the gospel and the importance and the priority that it ought to have in our lives and in our ministry. Oh, Father, today, if there's one person who doesn't know Jesus Christ as their Savior. Maybe there's one person who's never really heard or understood the gospel. I pray that by your Spirit you would awaken them to faith and you would turn them to repentance and trust in Christ. Father, for any of us who may have gotten distracted about the central nature of the gospel, I pray that you would bring us back and make it the priority of our life and our ministry. Lord, have your way in our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Paul begins in the first three verses here, and he says, I want to make this abundantly clear to you, brothers and sisters. He says, this is the gospel I preach to you. It's the gospel that you have received. It's the gospel in which you stand, and it's the gospel that has saved you. It is the message that I preached, and he says, I'm concerned that, that maybe there's some emptiness in your belief, if you don't understand this. And then he says in verse number three, for I passed on to you of what's first or most important. And so that's the first point today, the priority of the gospel. What is first important? What's first of all? What is the number one most important thing? The gospel must be the priority of our preaching and the center of our teaching. The gospel is crucial. And it's crucial that we understand with crystal clarity what is the gospel, what does the gospel mean, and what is the impact of the gospel on our life. We must guard that it is at the heart of what we do as a church and the message that we have as a congregation and our ministry. You can't have a message that's just about self-improvement. 
You can't have a message that's about some other goal. The message is about the saving work of God for us through Jesus Christ. And God made, and, and Paul made that gospel to be the priority of his preaching and teaching and evangelizing and his instructing. Because it speaks to every part of our life. Now notice what he says. This was the priority of my life. Now look with me to 1 Corinthians, just over a couple of pages, in your Bible, to chapter number 2, and beginning with verse number 1. Listen to what Paul has to say. When I came to you, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with the demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith may not be based on human wisdom, but on God's power. Paul said, I made priority in what I was preaching, the cross and priority the gospel. I didn't come to persuade you. I didn't come to you with fancy speech. I didn't come with, to you with philosophy and apologetics. I came to you with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is God's power. It is still powerful. It was the priority of Jesus' message. Mark's gospel, chapter 1, verse 38, Jesus is in Galilee near Capernaum. And he said to them, let's go on to the neighboring villages that I may preach there too, because this is why I've come. The heart of what Jesus did was preach, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. It is the heart of what we do. It's our mission. We've been given this mission. Christ has sent us on mission. Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now you go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Our gospel message ought to be priority in our life. In Acts chapter 8, we see the early church when persecution breaks out. Remember how Stephen is killed and there's persecution that takes place in all of Judea, particularly in Jerusalem, and believers are being scattered in the uh, Roman Empire. And as they're leaving, it says in Acts chapter 8, verse 4, so those who were scattered went on their way preaching the word. Priority to their life was the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Before and more important, listen to me this morning, more important than programs, more important than fellowships, more important than the slickest, latest Bible study, more important than politics, more important than social issues, more important than all of our other activities in the life of the church has to be the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because there's no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. Because there is only one way to God, and that's through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way. 
I am the truth. I am the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. There's not a secondary plan. There's one plan, and that's through Jesus Christ. Years ago, there was well-meaning Perhaps they were well-meaning. And said, well, Brother Tim, I think we're going to maybe go somewhere else to church. And I said, well, why? Well, you're just too evangelistic. And you're too, you know, you, you, you feel like you're always, you're always talking about the gospel. And you're always talking about turning from sin and trusting in God. And, and you're always talking about that that's what we ought to be doing. And we would like to go to maybe a different kind of church where they deal with the issues that we would like to hear addressed. Like how to communicate better with your wife and how to organize your finances better and how to raise your kids and how to be more successful. And we just don't get much of that in the preaching here. Well, I will not apologize for making the gospel the center of all that I do in the ministry that I preach. I have no other message then I am lost. And I'm in sin. And I'm broken. But there's only one. There's only one who paid for my sin. And died in my place. And rose again. And my hope rests in him alone. It's the gospel. It's got to be the priority of our life. And our ministry. Secondly, what, is, what are the essential elements of the gospel? Look with me in the text of scripture. He says, verse 3, For I passed on to you what is most important, what I also received. This is the thing that was preached to me. And that I have delivered to you that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scripture. This is the essential elements of the gospel. This is what I've received and this is what I preached. That Christ died for our sins. Let's unpack that for a moment. The very heart and kernel and nut of the gospel is that Christ, the Messiah, the King, that God sent for us, his son. He came to die for our sins. Jesus said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. This is why Jesus came into this world. To die for our sins. 
Listen, all of us have a problem, and the problem is our sin problem. Amen? All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Look with me to the book of Romans in chapter number 3, and notice how Paul makes this crystal clear in all of his teaching and all of his preaching. None of us can be right by our own merits. None of us deserve God's grace. None of us can earn God's favor. None of us are righteous in our own acts without Jesus Christ. For it says, what then, are we any better off? Not at all. We have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. It doesn't matter whether you're born with the law or not with the law. It doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. All of us are, are sinners by nature and by birth. In verse number 10, there is none, no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away, all alike have become worthless. There's no one who does what's good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues, vipers, venomous under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are subject to the law. So that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may be subject to God's judgment. Notice we are all sinners. We are all. There's none righteous. In verse number 23, it says succinctly, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's none that do right. You see, sin is missing the mark. Sin is falling short. Sin is missing the target for what God has in your life. The other day we were playing at a golf outing. Our bank uh, had uh, uh, invited me to participate in a golf outing. And so I decided to go and I took somebody that knew how to play golf better than me, uh, Drew Askew, with me. And so uh, Drew and I were playing, and, uh, and uh, uh, our bank that we do business with is involved in supporting several businesses, but also, uh, of course, corporations, but also many ministries. And so at the Cass Golf Bank outing, they had many other preacher types that were there. So there was a lot of missing the mark that happened in our golf game. As a matter of fact, one of the shots from the, one of the guys in our group hit the golf ball and it landed in the golf cart of the people playing the hole in front of us and rattled around. And so there were no curse words, but there were some looks that were exchanged with, with one another. We've missed the mark so much in our lives spiritually. That's worse than missing the mark with a golf shot. You see, when you fall short of the glory of God, you are under the condemnation of death. Because the wages of sin is death. And we have all fallen short of the glory of God. And that sin pays off in death. Because a holy God cannot allow sin where holy God is in his presence. So our sinfulness had to be dealt with. 
And God's great plan is he sent his son, the one without sin, to become sin so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. This is the greatest news I know in all the world. This is God's demonstrated love for us. In the book of Romans chapter 5 verse 8, God has demonstrated, he has shown, he has proven his own love for us. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Oh, glory upon glory. Christ, our king, became sin so that we might be made right with God. He bore the full penalty of my sin. Jesus' death was substitutionary. He took my place, the place I deserve, the judgment that I should have received. And he bore the full penalty of it and paid for it by dying on the cross for you and for me. This is the heart of the gospel. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 says, He, emphatically, he himself, by himself, bore our sins in his body on a tree so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. Here's the truth. He took your place. He bore your penalty. He died your death so that you could be free and live a new life for God. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that wonderful? It's the most glorious thing I know. You're going to hear a lot of news today. But it won't be any better than that. Christ died for you. 1 Peter chapter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered for sins once for all. The righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring you to God. He was put to death but made alive in the Spirit. Notice what Paul says, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Hmm. You see, Jesus' death was according to God's plan. In the book of Psalms, the 69th in verse 9 says, Because zeal for your house has consumed me, and the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. Notice how he bears the weight of our sin. This is most dramatically laid out for us in the Old Testament scripture of the book of Isaiah in chapter number 53. In that great servant song that we find in Isaiah, Notice with me Isaiah 53 and verse number 4. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses and carried our pains, but we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our rebellion. Mark that word rebellion. Crushed 
because of our iniquities. Mark that word iniquity. And our peace. And our, for our peace was on him. And we were healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all turned to our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He has placed on him. He's caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. In this passage of scripture in the Old Testament, there are three different words used for sin or failure in our lives spiritually. The first word is the word that's re used repeated here, repeatedly, is the word iniquity. That Old Testament word iniquity means twisted, gnarled, deformed. We might say that it's something internally wrong with us that's all perverted and messed up. Anybody ever feel that inside of you? You, you wonder why you do what you do and why you act the way you act and you don't want to act that way. You know why? Because we're all messed up inside. It's, it's real quiet in here. <laughs> Tell your neighbor, you're messed up. And you are. Some of you are offended by that. That's because you're messed up. <laughs> and God knew we're messed up. Because that's what sin does. Sin not only separates from you from God, sin messes you up inside. And it's generationally transferred. And it's applied in our own life because of our own sin. And all of your messed upness, Jesus bore it to the cross. The second word that is used here is the word transgression. It's translated in, in the, the, my translation today, rebellion. And that's what it is. It's, it's the willful, the Hebrew word there for, it, it means crossing the line, rebelling, breaking of the law, transgression. It is the law or the boundary line is here and you come right up to it and you see it and you willfully thumb your nose at God and you cross it. That is rebellion. Anybody have a child that might be a little bit rebellious in their life? Yeah, where'd they catch that? It's in us. It's our sin nature. It's this rebellion. I had a dog that I, I almost named her Pasha. That's the Hebrew word for rebellion. That puppy never wanted to obey anything. Rebellion. Transgression. Law breaking. You ever cross the line? You ever 
rebel in your life, if the speed limit says 65, you've got to make sure you go 68 because it's rebellion that's in you. It's the sin that's in our life. It's rebellion. But the other word is, is to fall short, to miss the mark, to be less than what God has called you to be. And the fullness of our sin, Jesus didn't just take the pretty little sins that we think are pretty and acceptable and die for them. Jesus took all of our sin in all of its ugliness and he bore it on the cross and he paid for it in full. The soul that sins will surely die and I deserve death because of my sin but Christ died for my sins. He is the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. We are not redeemed with, imper with perishable things, but an imperishable thing. That is the precious blood of Christ. And he died for us. Wow. Can you imagine having a book that contained all the sins you've ever committed in your life? And can you imagine every one of them listed from when you were a tiny child to your adult age today. All your sins of attitude, all the sins of neglect, all the sins of envy, all the sins of lust, all the sins of pride, all the different ways you've ever sinned in your life. Mine would probably be multi-volume. And it says the Lord took all of those iniquities and he placed them on him. And Christ paid for them in full. And he cried from the cross. It is finished. And once for all. Those sins are expiated. And they are removed. And a holy God is satisfied. And we are made right with God. <laughs> Glory. Hallelujah. That's the greatest news I know in all the world. It says in Isaiah 53, verse 12, Therefore I will give him the many as a portion, and he'll receive the mightiest spoil, because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many, and he interceded for rebels. Did you know when Christ was dying for you, he prayed for you? And he said, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. Wow. The one that we kicked against, the one we rebelled against, God in Christ has forgiven us of all of our sin. Man, that is awesome. Galatians 3 verse 13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. 
He became a curse for us because it's written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. You see, God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our part, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Paul goes on with the gospel and it says, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and rose again according to the scripture. Paul writes in Romans chapter 4 verse 25, he was delivered up for our transgressions and raised for our justification. Now look with me to 1 Corinthians 15, and Paul is making the point here about the central importance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then notice with me in chapter 15, verse 12, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say, there's no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised then our proclamation is in vain and so is your faith. Moreover, we're found to be false witnesses about God because we've testified wrongly about God that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise up if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. Then those who've fallen asleep in Christ have also perished, and we have put our hope in Christ in this life only should be more pitied than anyone. But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes through a man. Just as in Adam all die, in Christ all will be made alive. Hallelujah. Jesus has been raised from the dead. That's why we preach the gospel. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. <laughs> That's not the end of the story. And he rose again according to the scripture. There's hope beyond this great life. And there's hope in this world of sin. And if we don't stop, if we stop there only with the Christ for our sins, we haven't completed the gospel. He was buried and he rose again. In a world of sin, in a world of hate, in a world of racism, in a world of death, in a world of weariness, in a world of tragedy. Here is the good news. Our King Jesus rose again. And he is coming again. This is why we preach the gospel. God has ordained it. It is his plan. You say, well, Brother Tim, this is such a simple little message. Oh, yes, it's simple, but it is powerful. Hmm. I don't know why God ordained it so. He just did. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing about Christ. Wow. You see, when we preach the gospel, the Holy Spirit works, and he awakens. Now, all men and all women, they know the truth at some level. It's evident within creation. 
But it's almost like it's hidden. It's a mystery. It's, it's kind of like the mute button is on. They hear it, but they don't understand it. But when we preach the gospel, the simple gospel message, God speaks. God awakens. God unmutes. God lifts the veil over their eyes and their heart. And when that happens, then they see their sin for as it is against God. Then they see God's son, Jesus, and see him in all of his glory and beauty. And then they see the love of God that sent his son. And then they see Jesus dying for their sin. And they know it's for their sin. And they're drawn to Jesus. And they run to him in repentance and faith. And God does a work in their heart. And they are born again. It's mystery, all of it. It's a simple story. It's such a simple little story that a seven-year-old little child can understand it and be born again. But it's such a simple story that scholars are confounded by it. It's an amazing truth. It's the gospel. What is the proof of the gospel? Well, notice what he says. He said... He was buried and raised the third day according to the scripture. And then he appeared to Cephas. Who's Cephas? That's Peter. And then to the twelve, the apostles. And then to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive. Some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, he says. Jesus' half-brother. And then to all the apostles. And last of all, to one born out of order, born at the wrong time, he appeared to me. The least of the apostles. I'm not even worthy to be called apostle. I've persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. <laughs> Don't you love it? It was part of the preaching of the gospel. Of the early church, Peter preached in Pentecost, let all the house of Israel with certainty know that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. We are, we, he, again and again, the, the, the book of Acts says we are witnesses of these things. And Saul of Tarsus, on the way to persecute the church, had an encounter with Jesus. And he appeared to me also as one born out of time. My question to you, have you come to know him personally? Has he appeared to you? Have you heard the gospel? Have your eyes been opened? And have you put your trust in Jesus Christ? Finally, and you can look more in depth at this outline in the scripture verses. They're all online and resources under today's sermon. I want us to consider the power of this gospel. First of all, in verse number one, it says, It's the gospel I preached to you, you received, and you've taken your stand. Verse two, it's the gospel by which you're being saved. It's powerful. In 1 Corinthians chapter one, Paul writes, For the word of the cross is those who are perishing foolishness. 
but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. When I went to the, my very first church where I ever pastored, it was Bible school week, the first week I went to the church. Little bitty church in DeCoin, Illinois. I was finishing college. And on Bible school week, we shared the gospel. And there was one little girl, she was seven years old, and she wanted to know about the gospel. And we talked about it in the, Sundays, in the Bible school classes. And after church, she was sitting on the front bench in front of the church and I was just telling her about the gospel and one of the workers which was her mother in the Bible school was a woman I didn't know her from Adam but I was talking to her and sharing the gospel and the little girl was looking at me and I wasn't sure she was ready to be saved yet but as I was sharing the gospel with her I realized, it was just like the Holy Spirit tapped on my heart, shoulder and said, Tim, you're talking to the little girl, but the woman's listening. And so I kept talking to her, but I started looking over at the woman, and the woman, tears were coming down her eyes. And the little girl wasn't ready to be saved. She didn't fully understand. The Holy Spirit wasn't dealing with her right then. The Holy Spirit was dealing with the mama. And the mama... And she was a, a woman who was a part of the Mormon church. She heard the gospel and she was saved that day. And a few months later, her husband got saved. And then a year or so later, that little girl got saved. That's the way the gospel works. One day I was sharing the gospel on the train with somebody. And it was a man that I knew from town, and I was sharing the gospel. We happened to be on the same train going to Kansas City, and, and he listened to the gospel, but he didn't respond. But sitting one seat behind us was another man. When that man got off the train at his stop, that man says, I was listening to what you're talking about. Can I talk with you about that? I said, yes. And so he came and sat down by me, and he prayed to receive Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? You share the gospel. God's working. It's powerful. It's powerful. It's powerful in Zambia. It's powerful in Troy. It's the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Faith comes by hearing and hearing about the message of Christ. Listen to the words of Jesus. In John's Gospel, chapter 5, verse 24. Truly, I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come into judgment, but has passed from death unto life. Truly, I tell you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and they will hear and they will live. That's not just about the voice of God at the resurrection. That's the voice of God in the death, in your sin death. And whenever the gospel's preached, the voice of Christ speaks and he draws all men unto himself. That's why it must be the essential and the priority of all that we do.
My, little, my dad tells a story about his salvation. He hasn't gotten over it yet. He cries every time. He's only 86 years old. He was telling me about it again the other day. Now my grandmother witnessed to my dad and told him the story of Jesus. And God spoke to his heart and he was saved. Tell me the story of Jesus. Write on my heart every word. Tell me the story, most precious, sweetest that ever was heard. There's no greater message than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father in heaven, thank you for this word. It's powerful. It's true. It's transformative. It's eternally true. And Father, if there's one person here today that has never trusted Christ as their Savior, I pray that they would pray this prayer with me now and in their heart believe and put their trust on Christ. And maybe they would pray with me a prayer like this. Dear God, I know I'm messed up. I know I'm twisted and rebellious and sinful and I deserve death. But I believe that Jesus Christ is your son. And I believe that he lived a perfect life. And I believe that he died in my place for my sin. And I believe that he rose again. And I want you, Lord, to save me. I ask you to save me. I have nothing to bring. I just say, God, help me. Save me. I call on you. I believe in you. And dear God, I want to live for you. And I surrender my life. And I want you to be the Lord and the master and the king of my life. Thank you, God, for loving me. In Jesus' name, amen.